Our Father, we do come to you and we thank you that you are not only um, our creator, but you are our redeemer. And we come to you grateful that as our redeemer, the son of God came and he he took on our flesh and he revealed to us what his father is like. And now, Lord, we need uh, that revelation. We need our minds uh, illuminated. And so in this moment, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified by expanding our knowledge, increasing our understanding. Uh, Father, uh, cause our hearts to become re-astonished that we are even able to hear these things. And then we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to start with this idea that Jesus is our prophet. Uh, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of a prophet. What do you think of when it comes to mind? What comes to mind when you think of... Now, we, you, can, you can say something. This is a, a dialecture here. You can say something out loud. What comes to mind when you think of a prophet? What comes to mind? Uh, a man of God, Okay. Sweet, all right. What else comes to mind? You can just someone who knows the future. Okay, certainly uh, part of what the prophets did. Okay, okay, speaking God's word. Good job. You see, kind of just crazy hair, crazy beard, or you know. uh, someone who is uh, someone who is pretty intense. Perhaps maybe you sense someone who's. Um, really in touch with God, right? Um, you know, in the Old Testament, the prophet as an office began to rise, began to show up um, when there were discussions about Israel having a king. And so Samuel, for instance, Samuel is sort of a prophet and uh, he, he functions as one who holds uh, Israel accountable, and then as the office of a king uh, comes into uh, being established, the prophet is the one who holds the king accountable for the covenant that they have. And so the prophet was really someone who had been ordained and called by God, and they had been, in a sense, in the heavenly court. They had been uh, appearing either in a vision or some other way, that they have been actually present in God's presence. And then they were given a a message to deliver. And so a a part of what they did was to tell the future. But often, actually the majority of what they did was they actually restated what God had already said. And he held the people and particularly the king accountable for their behavior. And so uh, a prophet, a prophet is, is fuf- the prophet, the prophetic office is fulfilled in Jesus. So here's, here's, a, here's our situation in our cultural moment. Um, I want to I set this up by talking about uh, two profound novels in our day. Um, they are always on the list of the top 100 novels that you should read. Um, one is by George Orwell, uh, 
the title 1984. Uh, some of you who lived through 1984 will remember that we were all thinking about George Orwell when 1984 came around. And we were thinking about whether or not what George Orwell said about this uh, dom the dominance of uh, the political state of the hyper-control of Big Brother controlling everything, imagining sort of big screens and we're always getting dic uh, dictates from, from Big Brother and Big Brother's watching. We always thought about, at, at least in 1984, whether or not that actually happened. George Orwell's chilling novel describing a future with such a dark vision. And we were pretty happy that we had survived with our Bill of Rights intact and our liberal de democracy somewhat uh, intact, and so we, we survived 1984. Though we do see in our time um, increased uh, statism, I think that would be true. There's another novel, not quite uh, as well known, um, Aldous Huxley's novel, 1939, uh, Brave New World. And Huxley's vision is also very dark and very chilling, but his is very different about the future. His is not about the, the state depriving people of their autonomy and their freedom. Huxley portrayed people as coming to love their oppression. And they embrace technology. They embrace uh, what's called the Soma pill, which uh, makes them feel happy and they don't have to worry about big questions in life. And so they, uh, they actually enjoy the reduced capacity to think in Huxley's uh, vision of the future. Cultural critic Neil Postman uh, feared, uh, excuse me, he says that Orwell uh, feared uh, those who would ban books, Orwell's 1984. Huxley feared that there would be no reason to ban books for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Postman uh, goes on to say that Orwell feared those who wanted to deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell, again 1984, feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture. Huxley uh, would later write, uh, uh, something 25, 30 years later, he would actually write uh, a book called Brave New World Revisited. And he would speak to, to those who uh, continued to worry about our liberties and Big Brother, and it was, Huxley, uh, it was Huxley who said that we often fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. Okay, so those two novels sort of set up um, at least an image or a picture of uh, some aspects of our culture today. Who do you think was right? Was it uh, Orwell with his, uh, with this oppressive big brother state? Or was Huxley right with really the world of distractions and pleasure-seeking. And uh, you, you, you might uh, think on that one, uh, but I think as you hear me talk, I think you're going to hear me 
uh, you'll hear indi you'll indicate I'll indicate where I probably uh, stand on both those those writers. It was Blaise Pascal who said, "I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his own room." Blaise Pascal, uh, philosopher, mathematician, from many many years ago. Contemporary writer named Peter Kreft picks up on this theme of distraction, and he says this, if you are typically modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. You find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world can you hide a rhinoceros? Easy, cover it over with a million mice. Multiple diversions. Strange imagery. A hole in the middle of a mansion covered over with uh, a distracting pattern of wallpaper. Or a rhinoceros uh, in the middle of one's house. How do you cover it over? And he proposes a million little mice that represent distractions. This leaves us wondering, how is it possible that we could even discover or understand our condition in this world? How do we even realize, with so many distractions, what our true condition is? Have you ever looked out upon a, a large gathering of people? This overtakes me sometimes when I'm looking at a, a city. I was recently in the southeast, a large major city in the southeast, and I looked, out, looked at the people the people walking on the streets, little children, and I wondered about them. I thought about how is it that they will ever know their true condition before a holy God? We have before us a text that describes that Jesus is the unique revealer of God's intentions. John 1.18, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Look at verse 18 there. He has made him known. I don't know if we're impressed with our need to understand who Jesus is. Maybe we take pride in our personal upbringing. Maybe we were raised as Christians, and that's a wonderful thing. Maybe we were raised in a Christian home. What a remarkable privilege. But have we ever thought... Have we ever imagined that we just naturally understood what Jesus represents, who he is, why he has come? Did we really have just a natural proclivity to understand the truth of Jesus? Did we just naturally get it? Or did Jesus do a remarkable, deep work where he spoke deeply to us and revealed our condition to him? No one has ever seen God it's a statement about our condition. We are blind to the glory that we ought to see. In John 15, verse 5, we have Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. I'm often trimming back the jungle uh, that is outside our house. I just randomly go out with a machete, and um, I know... I'll find something out there. And I, I always do. There's vines, there's stuff to cut back. And uh, if I didn't do that, um, I'm sure after many years, the jungle 
would take over our very house. Now, when I cut off those vines and branches, I may leave them around for a while. I may get lazy and just, I don't know, just leave them here. And then I look back in a couple of days how quickly they shrivel, how quickly the lays, uh, ladies. We all know this, don't we? Um, We love cut flowers. Cut flowers for a few hours are remarkable. Maybe for a week they can survive with water. But we live in a cut flower society. All of our enjoyments are short-lived. All of what we think is life is actually cut off from the very source. John 15, 5. You have no life apart from me. And yet we have people who live what appears to be full lives, happy lives, pursuing happy things. And of course they live in this cut flower moment of, yeah, it's exciting to have a new car, beautiful house, a new acquisition, a new boat, new vacation home, whatever magic it you might be pursuing, a thousand diversions. I am the vine, you are the branches. And then Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You will not bear fruit unless you are vitally connected to me. And then he has this statement about our condition. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we think about that? Do we walk around our Monday through Saturday experience thinking like that? Are we really this dependent upon Jesus to communicate his vital communication and his vital grace to us? The shocking truth is we are not related or connected by nature to the one who gives us life. Well, we've become accustomed to this life, this life that we are not uh, truly, that is not truly life. Jesus came across even people who were religious, who were digging through the scriptures. They came close to the scriptures. They were, in a sense, experts on the scriptures. The Pharisees, the the scribes of, of the days of Jesus who were interpreters of the law, and he encounters them in John 5, and he tells them, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think you have life in them. But you do not know it is these that speak of me. So our condition is actually even worse than we thought. Not only are we distracted with thousands and thousands of diversions, but let's say we're not distracted and we actually read our Bibles. We can actually read our Bibles with with wrong motives, as depicted in the Pharisees and the scribes. And so we see it's important if Jesus is going to speak deeply to our condition we actually have to have a revelation of how deep he has to speak to us. And it's interesting to watch the different kinds of Jesus Christ there are in American culture. There are uh, many, many different kinds of Jesuses uh, sort of being presented from, from various pulpits. I won't go into all the various ones, but many of them don't ever go beyond the idea of Jesus meeting your felt needs. Jesus is there. As a good friend, Jesus is there to calm your, your worries. But he's never really there to speak to your deep condition, to shed blood for you, and to redeem you from, from the wrath of God. And so even in the scriptures, we are desperate for God to reveal to us with his prophetic voice what is our true condition, to speak with binding authority, 
Um, Osgenis remarked of American Christianity that it is a million miles wide and an inch deep. We wonder why there are not more changed lives resulting from the gospel that is being proclaimed in the pulpits. Jesus is a prophet who powerfully speaks to our whole psychology of distraction. The deep, compelling itch that makes us more afraid of boredom than facing a holy God. And it is the mercy of God that Jesus speaks so deeply to our condition. Now look at John 17, which is really where I want to land for a few moments. Listen to this. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them, now notice this, the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And so Jesus is here in his high priestly prayer. He is communicating to his Father that successful communication has taken place. The disciples and Christ's followers were given the prophetic word of Jesus. Their eyes were opened and they understood that he was authorized to reveal the Father's character and his will to redeem people. Ligonier Ministries uh, speaks and included this on your sermon page. Ligonier out of Florida, R.C. Sproul's uh, ministry, uh, includes this idea about Jesus as a prophet. Jesus pronounced an end to all our sin. In the Old Testament, the prophet was the mouthpiece of God to the people. In fact, the prophet often prefaced his words by saying, thus says the Lord, as God's mouthpiece, the prophet spoke the words of indictment against the people for their sin, Isaiah 1.4, and called them to repentance. The people pronounced, excuse me, the prophet pronounced the forgiveness and pardon of God. Isaiah 40, 1 through 2. And Jesus, as the final and sufficient prophet, has done all of these things. He came not just proclaiming the word of God. He is the word of God. John 1, 1. He came to the world because of sin. Matthew 1, 21. He proclaimed our need to repent and believe on him. And he proclaimed our pardon and forgiveness for sins. Colossians 1, 14. Now, Jesus, our prophet, takes these remarkable words in Scripture and does something amazing. He makes these words speak deeply to our condition and by the Holy Spirit effectually applies these words that open up our eyes to our condition and he applies them to you that you might understand. Effectually calling you to understand your condition, opening your eyes. It happened to me while I was hearing the, a sermon on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. I found myself completely uh, out of sorts, unable to make sense of a lot of what was going on, but I did know that Jesus was transcendent above, though I didn't have that word in my vocabulary, 
He was above, alive. It made sense. I could re- reflect. I guess he did rise from the dead. What's he doing now? Oh, this is what he's doing now. He's knocking this man off his donkey. He's alive, and he is the ever-present Lord, the one that I will be held accountable to. And this was very uncomfortable. But Jesus was revealing by his spirit my true condition. He was using that text and speaking with the voice of a prophet to my true condition. He effectually called me. And he's effectually called you. If his name is sweet to you, if you have professed faith, you've been baptized, you come now to the Lord's Supper, he continues to to call you and to encourage you and to present the blessings of his salvation to you. He has convinced you of the misery of your condition. He's convinced you of your sin. He's enlightened your minds in the language of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 31. He's enlightened your minds in the knowledge of Christ. You have sufficient knowledge of him. Not comprehensive, but sufficient. And he's renewed your will Jesus the prophet has spoken to you and he has told you what you ought to do. And unless he calls you, you will not want to do it. And as you hear the name Jesus preach to you, come to him. As God accompanies that preached word with effectual calling, as he accompanies the word of God, faith comes by hearing Romans 10, 9, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God as he accompanies that effectual calling. Your nature is changed and your will is engaged. You now can see the sweetness of who Jesus is at some level. You can see his goodness. You can see his kindness. You can see his mercy toward you. You can see yourself as a sinner and you come running to Jesus. Will you have me, Jesus? I want You, that is a miracle of God's grace. You have moved out of your natural-born indifference. Actually, that's not quite accurate. Your natural-born hatred of God. We do not want his authority over us by nature. And our our condition is known to us at some level, Romans 1 tells us. We know we ought to respond in worship to God, but we suppress this truth in unrighteousness. But we find a, a million diversions. Read recently that the average teenager, and uh, this is not just for teenagers, Uh, texts some 60 times a day. Um, And uh, that's just the average. So we do live in a distracted culture, don't we? And the church can buy into all uh, sort of the, 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 whether it's technologies or what will actually keep a crowd, 
entertain a crowd, stop them from getting bored. The church itself can adopt the spirit of the age, back away from gospel preaching, preach something else, and actually perpetuate um, a sense in which the gospel is being changed and God will not use that gospel to convert and bring people to saving knowledge. So I say this to say to you that faith has come to you by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus, our prophet, has spoken to you in your condition. He has spoken to us in our misery, in the language of the Heidelberg Catechism. He has spoken to us, and we now can understand it, but we understand also the sweetness of his deliverance. And I want to conclude, here it is very simply. Are you growing in an appreciation that you, at some level, understand this gospel that you understand his calling in your life, that you are drawn to respond to him, that you have a desire to continue with him, that you continue to take the Lord's Supper, that you continue to walk with him, and you struggle, and you continue to, to perhaps stumble forward, as it's been described in the Christian life, but you continue on, and the question is, why do you continue on? Why are you not turning to some other distraction Why? Because he has effectually called you and he's keeping you. Such was how deep Jesus preached to you, how he spoke so deeply to you that you, at the core of you, where your nature resides, you were changed. And I just want you to, to relish in this, to glory in this, to thank God for this, that he spoke effectually to you and brought you to himself. He renewed your will and he persuaded you and enabled you in the language of the catechism to embrace Jesus Christ as he was freely offered to you in the gospel. The doctrine of justification became real to you you moved into grasping aspects of adoption and now you're growing in sanctification he has done a remarkable work he has provided for you an understanding of your deliverance i hope you relish in it i hope you i hope you pray and thank god for this i hope that you remember his grace to you, and you give him praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the persuasion of your spirit as the prophet Jesus came and spoke the true words. And he said, apart from me, we can do nothing. Father, thank you for bringing this remarkable plan to fruition that Jesus accomplished salvation and that Christ finished it and that the Holy Spirit now applies this remarkable salvation to our hearts. Renew your people. Cause us, Lord, to glory in this remarkable, deep work of Jesus. In the name of Christ, we pray. 
Amen. Amen.